there are a few things that I just happen to omit in my resume. Uh, one of them is my very first job at Ponderosa. Anybody have gone to a Ponderosa before? You're laughing. You already know. Okay. So Ponderosa steak, Steakhouse, um, I had the opportunity to clear tables, uh, <laughs> do dishes, flip steaks, um, just one of those $4.25 an hour kind of gigs you have as a high schooler. You just don't put that on your resume. What can you do? And another one I don't really put on there um, was I, I, for a few months, I, I mowed grass in a desert. It sounds like a beginning of a joke, but unfortunately, it was reality. Um, a few months before this, I, uh, unfortunately, my relationship at the church that I was working at ended sooner than I would have liked it to. If you can connect the dots, nobody likes to say the word fired. So, um, <laughs> it's okay, it wasn't, anyway, we're not. Um, so, I found myself in a situation where I was kind of in Ohio. I was, I was looking for another youth ministry. I felt called to this. I feel like this is just something that God's placed in my heart. A buddy of mine named Jeff, a, a real good friend of mine from college, calls me up. He goes, hey, John, I hear you're looking for a youth ministry. How about you do something crazy? How about you move down to Phoenix, live with me, my wife, and my tiny little baby boy, because the church here in Phoenix is just it's, just, it's crazy. It's growing. There's junior hires, senior hires everywhere. And as you're looking for a job, you know what you can do? You can volunteer. You can hang out here. The internet, you can look for a job anywhere. And I thought, yeah, sure. Packed up my S10, drove all the way down to the desert. And the uh, very first thing I did there is I, I had to get a job to do something. So the, the church I was starting to volunteer at in the youth ministry, um, I knocked on the door and I said, hey, do you, you wouldn't happen to have any uh, openings, would you? And they're like, oh yeah, we need somebody to clean toilets and mow the grass. And I'm like, yes, I needed money. That's what you do. And I'm not embarrassed about cleaning toilets or mowing grass. I'm embarrassed because I am bored, horrible at mowing grass and cleaning toilets. But because of my friend Jeff, who gave me a shot, said, hey, come live with me. I had an opportunity to get my feet under me. And volunteering at First Christian Church of Phoenix, First Christian Church of Phoenix looked outside and said, hey, you know what? That guy on the lawnmower... He's not really good at that. <laughs> but we need another youth minister. Maybe he's better at that. <laughs> so they kind of stuck their neck, uh, their neck out and took a chance on me. I had the opportunity to work for that church for a long time, and I had the privilege of meeting a very short, curly-haired children's minister who I blackmailed into loving me and marrying me. And now we have kids, and we're here, so yay! <laughs> but... If you are, <laughs> if you're here in service, if you're Westside, if you're, if you're new to us, way to be brave, great job coming to something very strange and new, and if you're online, we'd like to welcome you, and if you're anything like me, you've got a past. You've made a mistake. You've said or done something that did not turn well. I hate to use the word sin, but the reality is, is we have all done something wrong, just gone out of our way and have hurt either ourselves or families or others. Um, I feel like there are some obstacles that are in our way back to a normal life after we've made mistakes, after we've messed up, after we have sinned. I feel like one of them is internally that we have to deal with and one is externally. The first one internally is we might feel that we are so messed up that our past will haunt us forever. 
Now, I don't know your story, and you don't know all of mine, but we are imperfect people that sometimes mess up. And sometimes we think, how in the world am I ever going to be able to show my face again at grandma's after she finds out that I? How do we show our face at church again? Am I going to be known as a hypocrite? If, if I want to influence and try to love people, is this going to be on me? Is this going to be kind of like my, my, my past as a backpack that I've got to carry on? Am I not good enough? That internally, we have to figure this out. We have to look around and say, you know what? I, man, I'm, maybe I'm not good enough. I, I'm just not measured up. That's internally something we have to deal with. Externally, and again, I'm not pointing a finger at you. I'm sure you're beautiful, wonderful people. What I struggle with sometimes is when I see someone else's past, when I see someone else's messy life, I have the tendency to get the baseball bat of truth out and be like, you should have done this, you should have done that. I've had a couple conversations with high schoolers, some even adults that say, hey, wait a minute, Christians, aren't those the ones who shoot their wounded? Aren't they the ones that bury their sick? We have a tendency, maybe not you, but me, have a tendency of looking at somebody else's past or baggage and saying, I don't want to deal with that. It's too risky. It's too messy. I don't want to get that on me. Matter of fact, um, because of our own insecurities, we push away people that remind us of our own own imperfections. Because I'm a baseball guy. I'm just a baseball guy. Um, Illustration, sometimes the fandom of America has a pretty good job with grace. Um, I'm not a Yankee fan, but I'm an Andy Pettit fan. A few years ago, Andy did something wrong. He made a mistake. And I love what Andy did. Andy got on ESPN or whatever press conference, looked in the camera and said, I want to apologize to all the Yankee fans out there. I want to apologize for all the baseball fans out there. I am in control of my body. I am sorry for my actions. I messed up and I promise it'll never happen again. And you know what we did as American baseball fans? We said, okay. I've been there, I've made mistakes, maybe maybe not that mistake, but we still talk, uh, American baseball uh, fans, we still talk A-Rod, we still talk uh, Barry Bonds, and like, oh, cheaters, cheaters, Mark McGuire, cheater, cheater. But man, Andy Pettit's like, no. He kind of gets a free pass because he kind of owned up for it, and we just kind of gave him forgiveness. Today, we are continuing our, continuing our AD series. This week, we're looking at the start of the church through the book of Acts. Today, we're going to be focusing on one man. One man was at the right place and time to change the direction of the early church because of how he encouraged others with a negative past or present So if you'd like to, we're going to open up to Acts chapter 9. Tablets, phones, if you want to go old school, there's paper Bibles. Um, Acts 9, I would always encourage you, just like I encourage high school students, if you don't have a Bible on your phone, it's free. Have a Bible on your phone. So we're going to turn to Acts 9. It'll be on the screen as well if you'd like. Acts 9, 19 through 25. Saul, Paul, Different names, same dude, sorry. Spent several days with the disciples there in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus was the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those whom called on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving, I love that word, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night 
lowered him a basket through the opening in the wall. If you were here last week at Sherwood Oaks Christian, Tom preached about the conversion of Saul. Saul is not a nice guy. Um, He really did not like Jesus. He really did not like the followers of Jesus, and he took it upon himself to persecute in prison or just straight out make sure they are dead. And what what Paul or what Saul was doing was riding around and basically persecuting the church. On the way to Damascus, Jesus did something ridiculous. Knocked him off his horse. He has a different perspective now. Saul is now Paul. I know that's confusing. I apologize. Paul has spent the last few years in Damascus hanging out with Christians preaching and teaching about Jesus Christ as Messiah. And this is completely polar opposite of his life before. He was coming to persecute the Damascus church, and now he's literally preaching and teaching that Jesus is the Messiah. This is a 180 like maybe nobody's ever seen before. This is crazy. Paul, because of this, is not well liked by a lot of people. Matter of fact, the book of Acts, we keep looking um, chapter and chapter. Paul, everyone wants to kill Paul. Nobody likes Paul. Now, uh, when, when he was on the, the Jewish uh, leadership side, he was going on persecuting, uh, and now he's flipped sides, flipped teams, and now the Jews want him dead. The Hellenistic Jews want him dead. Pretty much the Romans didn't like him. Uh, the Christians of the time, well, I mean, if he was rolling into your town to imprison or murder your family because you believed in Jesus, you weren't hanging out with Paul. Paul is kind of, he's a hot mess. He's a dumpster fire. Nobody wants to be around him. He escaped and headed off to Jerusalem, found out that people were going to try to kill him, so he heads to Jerusalem. And here's where we find the guy that changes the new church. The beginning of the new church is changed because of one man. And here we go, Acts 9, 26 through 29. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join Paul, tried to join the disciples, but they were too afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles. He told them, how Saul in his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he has preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed there, moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. They also tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Paul, because of his baggage, because of his broken life, because of his actions in his past, is alienated. Nobody, nobody wants to hang out. Even the disciples, Peter, the disciple of Jesus, and James, the brother of Jesus, looked at this guy and goes, oh, I don't know. I don't want any of that. That's just a whole lot of mess. That's a whole lot of broken life. This man wanted acceptance from the very people he was tormenting, and this was a difficult thing. Our protagonist enters the story. Barnabas is the linchpin in the early church. Paul is dead in the water without Barnabas. There's no way Paul and the leaders in the Jewish church would ever meet if it wasn't for one man who said, I'll vouch for him. I've seen his life changed. God has done something so ridiculous in Paul's life, you can't ignore it, I can't ignore it, and he needs to talk to you. You need to talk to him. You guys need to collaborate. This is a turning point for the new church before this encounter, this meeting between Paul and Paul. Peter, James, and Barnabas. Peter and James were the leaders of the Jerusalem church. You can literally draw a line in Acts, and after this encounter, after this conversation, Paul takes center stage for the rest of the book of Acts. For the rest of the beginning of our church history, Paul is now pretty much our leader. 
Why did Barnabas take this risk? That's what I want to ask. I want to try to figure out a little bit more about this Barnabas guy and try to figure out why he decided this was a worthy cause. Let's take a closer look at a couple of scriptures. I'm going to bounce around in Acts just a little bit. Stay with me. We're going to take a look at Barnabas. Acts 4, 37, or 36 and 37 says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay, the author of Acts, his name is Luke, and he's writing all these accounts, this historical document, and he knows that they're going to go church to church to church, and people are going to read it, uh, make copies of it, and he decided, you know what, if I write down Joseph, nobody's going to remember Joseph. Nobody's like, who's Joseph? Who's that Joseph guy? No, everybody remembers Joseph by his nickname, Barnabas. Barnabas' real name is Joseph, but Luke says, no, 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 you don't remember the Joseph guy because everybody called him this because this is what he was. He was an encouraging man. Wherever, however, he was connecting with people and trying to encourage them on to the next thing, the next uh, step of their lives, he was known to be an encourager. Now, I don't know if Barnabas was rich or poor, but he sold some land, gave it to the apostles and said, hey, whatever needs to be done, go for it. So right now we know he's an encourager, and he's got a big heart for ministry. Acts uh, 11, 25 through 26 says this. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. This is years later. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church, taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Saul, Paul, same guy, um, was doing such amazing things in the kingdom building churches, preaching and teaching. Barnabas said, you know what we need? We need that guy. We need, to, we need to bring him in here, and we can partner up, and this is going to be amazing. And they did that for a year. Then after that, they spent multiple missionary journeys. For years and years, Paul and Barnabas hung out with other guys, going around to Gentiles. And Gentiles is just a churchy word for somebody who's not Jewish. Right? Most of us in here, and if you are, are rock on. But if you are not, if you are a Gentile... You have Paul and Barnabas to thank. Because of Barnabas' sticking his neck out, trusting and vouching for Paul, they established churches all over the place that were reaching non-Jews, people like you and me. We can kind of stretch that a little bit and make the point 2,000 years later here in Bloomington, Indiana, we have the opportunity to stand and worship Jesus because these two men decided, you know what, I'm going to reach out and do amazing things for Jesus. The risk paid off into partnership. Last one, and this is kind of where we see the end of Barnabas' story. Kind of lose him to history here. Acts 15, 36, 39. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let's go back and visit the believers in the towns that we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas said, hey, I want to take John, also called Mark. Everybody's got two names, I'm sorry. Um, but Paul did not continue with them in the work. Oh no, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. They had such a sharp disagreement, they parted company. Barnabas took John Mark and sailed for Cyprus. One of the reasons I love scripture is it's not Disney. <laughs> this is real. I feel like this is real life. If, if this was just some, some story that somebody wanted to put together, they would be singing Kumbaya. Everybody would be hugging each other. At the end of every Disney movie, everybody learns a lesson. The bad guy's in the corner going, man, I shouldn't have done that. This is great. I love this. This is tension. 
Paul and Barnabas are like, and they split up. They move in separate directions. This is great. This is honest stuff. We lose track of Barnabas in history, but he grabs John Mark, sails for Cyprus to plant churches. The last thing we hear about Barnabas is he's doing kingdom work. So why did Barnabas take the risk? Because he was a guy that encouraged everyone, even people with messy and broken lives, pasts, presents. Three things that Barnabas lived out loud that I would love to pay attention to this morning. If you take notes, great. If you don't, that's fine. But these three things, if you want to write them down, and put them on your arm, you know, whatever. Um, Barnabas was, number one, Barnabas was a believer who insisted on believing the best in others. Now, growing up, I don't know if, if this was intentionally taught to me or if this was accidentally taught, either way, I'm a human being, John Muffler, that when I meet somebody for the very first time, I automatically, I have to respect them. They are somebody, and I'm not tooting my own horn because it gets worse, hold on. Um, I look at somebody, I shake their hand, I'm like, sweet, this guy has unlimited potential and amazing, this, this is great, but the second he says something I don't like or shows up late to something or is a Cub fan, automatically, just, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, um, but I have to work on that. So at the beginning, I feel like it's pretty healthy, but I allow it to erode. Barnabas was a man that walked up, and if he greeted somebody, he said, you know what, I'm, I bet you you can do it. I'm not sure, but I'm just going to believe the very best in you. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. doesn't matter what car you drove here. It doesn't matter where you live, where your kids go to school, what your last name is. Barnabas would look at you and say, yeah, I think you can do it. The second one, Barnabas was a believer who did not hold someone's past against them. This is hard. I don't, I don't really deserve to be here. I am not some great theologian. I am not some perfect person. I'm just John. I have a past just like you. And guys, if, if we truly knew each other's stories, I think most of us would be heartbroken and empathetic and love people, and some of us would be a little scared. But Barnabas set the example. He said, you know what? No matter what your past is, you're worth it. Your present is more important. Your future is more important. He would look at somebody and say, you know what? I know you've done wrong, but I'm going to give you a shot. The third thing is Barnabas was a believer who did not pass up a chance to help someone, even if others thought it was a bad idea. He took a chance on Paul, who was not a very nice guy that everybody wanted to murder, and his own friends, Peter and James, didn't want to have anything to do with him. And Barnabas stood up and said, no, 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 I've seen this guy's life change. I've seen what he's done. I've seen what he's preached. It's, he's living his life. He's not just talking about it. It's completely different. And so he connects with him. He ministers with him. He's a partner with him. He invests in him. But the irony is later in Scripture, they break up because of this. Did you read that? Did you hear that? Barnabas took a chance with John Mark, and guess who said, oh, no, 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 no. Paul, right? Paul's like, oh, no, he flaked out on us one time when we were going to that one place. Remember, I don't want him with us. Paul, the guy that was killing and persecuting and harassing people, was like, oh, he wasn't on time one time. No, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Barnabas looks at John Mark and says, I see his potential. I know he screwed up. Who cares? I know today he's working at it. He looked at John Mark and said, I'm going to back you even if other people don't. Even if other people think you, like, I'm doing the wrong thing. 
And that is hard. So what do we do? What, how do we respond to information? Because information is great. But what do we do with it? Step one. Remember those two things that sometimes when we have to deal with pain and sin, one we have to deal with in, inward and one we have to deal with outward with other people, you are still useful in the kingdom no matter what your story is. You are still useful in the kingdom no matter what your story is. You are still useful in the kingdom no matter what your story is. A buddy of mine has a shirt, a t-shirt that reads, my sin does not define me. Praise God that we have Jesus to forgive us and love us, and we do not have to sit and wallow in the garbage of our past. You are valuable, and you are useful. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. And I'm excited to be a part of a congregation, a part of a church that looks at broken people and say, you know what? Come on in. This isn't for perfect people. This isn't for people that have gotten it right. This is for people that are messy. This is for people that aren't necessarily loved by everybody. We have alcohol support groups. We have divorce care. We have sexual addiction groups. We have chemical support. We have life groups. We have tons of opportunities to circle up and have hard conversations because this life is damaging and we make mistakes. You are not your sin. You are still useful no matter what your story is. Number two, now that you kind of get it and maybe you can swallow that and say, if I'm useful and if just because I have a story, other people are useful too. If we take that on and say, well, Jesus loves us, well, guess what? Jesus loves the next guy. So now let's live it. Let's live like others matter. Treat others based not on their past, but their potential. I've got a buddy in high school ministry. He's an adult leader. And I love him to death. I won't use his name. Um, but his heart is a compass for messy lives. When a high schooler is around and, and they don't really fit in, or maybe they've got a bad reputation, or maybe they don't play by the same rules that we kind of have here at church, he's the first guy to stand up, walk over there, and sit down. His heartbeat is reaching high school students that don't necessarily fit in or have a bad past. And as a youth minister of this church, I am envious and proud he's part of this team. I have a friend, a friend of mine leads a group of women that are building relationships with young ladies that work in the sex trade. These are young ladies that have come together and circled up and said, you know what, these people are valuable. It doesn't matter their past or even their present. They see them and say, they have worth, they have value and love. Through casseroles, hot chocolate and conversation, these ladies are investing in these poor women. How do we model a modern day Barnabas? We encourage new believers, we help develop maturing Christians, and boldly influence others for Jesus. All right, here we go. Let's play a game. Get out your phone. I know it's church. Totally cool. Top's not here. Get your phone out. Put it on vibrate. You can do it. I'll wait. I've got the microphone. I can wait as long as you want. Get your phone out. What I want you to do is I want you to text yourself. So go ahead and open your text field, write your name. My name is John Muffler. You can text me, that's fine. Um, you write your name in there, okay? And here's what I want you to do. Take a second and think, whom? Think of someone in your circle you could take a chance on, that you can believe in, encourage them, even if no one else will. Get that name and plug it in your phone. Do not text them. 
Awkward conversation. <laughs> hey, I know you're, I know, I know. Text yourself as a reminder. After, after the service is done, after you go eat lunch with your family or do whatever you need to do, or go to 14 graduation parties this afternoon, pulled pork. Mm. Um, this, this name will be on your phone. Who can you invest in? Who can you encourage? Who can you stand next to that nobody else will? Who can you have a cup of coffee with? Who can you mentor? Who can you pray for that is in your circle? A kid, a parent, somebody at work, somebody in your life, maybe a next-door neighbor. Who can you tangibly encourage no matter what kind of past they have, no matter what kind of present they have? Because Barnabas gives us a fantastic example of following Jesus. He looked at other people and said, I'm not going to judge you in your past. I'm not going to judge you in your present. You are valuable. I'm going to think the best of you. And I'm going to do something about it. So that's my encouragement and challenge for you guys today. One person, not the world, start smaller. One person, text yourself that name. So that later on today, tomorrow morning when you wake up and you're like, okay, first of all, I can pray for this guy. And then second of all, There you go. That's my encouragement. That's my challenge for you. Luke says this in the book of Acts 11.24. He says this about Barnabas. Barnabas is a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and influenced many to a faith in Jesus Christ. The author of Acts says, Luke says, Barnabas is a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and influenced many in the faith of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine if that was said about you. Can you imagine somebody said that about me? How would our lives look so differently if we lived a life that people would say, man, that's a, that's a, that's a good woman. She just wants the best for other people. She is full of faith. She's not perfect, but she's trying so hard to follow after Jesus Christ, and she is influencing others, not screaming at others, not using the baseball bat of truth, but in, influencing others through love Jesus, so people can know Jesus Christ. Can you imagine how our lives would look differently? How would your families, how would your marriages, how would your work look differently if somebody could look at you and say, you're a good dude, you encourage people, you take risks. Can you imagine a life like that? I would love to see us.